the twelve brothers were the chosen ones, but this did not mean they could live as they would so choose. And the suffering that the, uh, actually the ten went through because Benjamin was too young, he was not involved in the sale, uh, the sale of Joseph down in Egypt, and of course Joseph himself. The other ten were the ones who suffered through these twenty years. And what's interesting is that that uh, 20 years of suffering that they went through did not pay or in any way atone for their sin against their brother. It's sort of like a, a boil that had to be lanced as it were. That is the sin that they had committed had to be confessed to God, to Joseph, and to Jacob for it ultimately to bring healing. And I think this should be a strong lesson to us as we think about this, that there is no sin that we could commit that is worth the emotional, spiritual, and even sometimes physical pain that is caused when we try to justify what we do and we try to hide it from others. We have to, as the scripture teaches us over and over again, and as these brothers are forced to do, acknowledge their sin before God and before those that they have sinned against and to receive God's cleansing daily. Why? So that we might have joy, so that we might have peace, so that we might have contentment. This is God's plan for our lives. God's plan isn't that we be rich necessarily. Uh, God's plan isn't that we, you know, have all of the things that this world has to offer or to be in perfect health. But God's plan is that we have joy and peace and contentment. And scripture after scripture in the Old Testament and New Testament continually teaches this. Now those ten brothers didn't lack for worldly goods. Their father was a relatively wealthy sheik, if you will. And, and they always had plenty of food and clothing. They had a place to live. They had huge herds. They had all of those things, but throughout that 20 years they had this pain inside because of what they had done and what they were hiding. And God, in all that we're studying about in this passage, was not up there thinking of, boy, I'm going to show those guys, I'm going to punish those guys. He wanted to bring healing. This was his plan. This was his desire. And the way to bring healing was to open the wound and let it all hang out. As I was thinking about this uh, last night, Psalm 32 came to my mind in, in, in this light. I'd just like to read the first five verses of Psalm 32 where we read, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted through my groaning all day long. For not day and night my hand, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. We can relate to that here. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. To me, this passage speaks directly to this whole passage of scriptures, this whole section of scripture in Genesis we're studying. Because it, it talks about not 
hiding sin. It talks about uh, keeping silent leads to a wasting of the body, the spirit, the mind, and that the vitality is drained away. And then when I confess my sin, God forgave the guilt and joy would return. And that really is a major theme of this whole encounter between Joseph and his brothers in Egypt nearly 4,000 years ago. If you will, turn to the 43rd chapter of Genesis and we'll pick up with verse 16. Genesis 43, 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. So they came near to Joseph's steward's Joseph's house when they so they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, "Oh my lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks and behold each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand." We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he said, Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men to Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. Again, remembering the, the, the famine was heavy on the land. This was the second year of the drought. And the, the family of Jacob living over in Canaan was hard oppressed by the drought as they were in Egypt. And so they were returning now to, to get food a second time. The first time, of course, Joseph had recognized them, <coughs> but they had not recognized him. And he had returned their money and demanded that if they wanted to come back again, they had to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, with them. And in order to guarantee that, he kept their, the uh, brother Simeon there in prison in Egypt as surety for Benjamin. They have now returned. And uh, this is describing the beginning of that particular encounter. As, as they approach Jacob's, uh, uh, Joseph's palace, they fear the worst because you remember I mentioned to you last time that as they returned, they hoped that, that Joseph would just say, ah, oh, Benjamin's here, here's Simeon, here's your food, uh, thank you for the money, go home. And that's what they wanted. Above everything, that's what they wanted. <laughs> they wanted as little attention from Joseph as possible because they were scared to death of him. They didn't know, of course, he was their brother. And as they are now being drawn to his palace, all they could think of was, it's because of the money. The money was put back in our sacks and we don't know how it got there and, and uh, they were worried because he was going to use that as an excuse, they thought, to enslave them. We discover as we read, from, as we read there from verse 19 on that they were so fearful that they went to the, 
steward of Joseph's house. Now again, let me just mention, we're not talking about some kind of an abject slave here. We're not talking about just a servant who doesn't know what's going on. We're talking about the, the man to whom Joseph delegated authority over all that he did. He was to Joseph as Joseph had been to Potiphar. He was a very high-ranking Egyptian official. Otherwise, why would they bother running up to a, a little old servant and trying to tell all their problems to him? They wouldn't. They're dealing with a man that they believe has influence with Joseph. And so as they come to him, they, they begin to, to try to allay their fears by bringing him into their problem and explaining to him what really happened. They wanted him to know they were honest men. And as they were approaching the palace, they emphasized to the steward they had no idea who put the money back in their sack that first time. And to prove their integrity, integrity, they showed him the money. Look, here is the money we brought the first time. Here is the money we're bringing now for the food. We're honest men. We, we don't know how the money got there. Uh, please, if you will, intercede with us before Joseph. This was the implication of their plea. But you'll notice his response. The response of the steward to those ten brothers had to be absolutely bewildering. Because in effect he said, take it easy guys. You got nothing to worry about. Your God is watching out for you. He put the money in your sacks. I had it. I had your money the first time. But it's your God's fault that the money was put back in the sacks. Well, of course, how could they understand that? You know, did God take it from him and float it over and into the sacks? Yeah. They didn't understand what in the world he was saying. And it just, you know, it's really interesting because Joseph could not have planned a more masterful deception than we read in this passage uh, had he had, you know, eons to think about it. The steward then left them as they were about to enter the palace. He went into the palace. And the scripture tells us a few minutes later, he returned with Simeon. Here's your brother. Then he leads all 11 of them, Benjamin is with them, into the inner courtyard where they're given water so that they can wash their feet. Standard practice in that part of the world in those days. Another servant then led the donkeys to another part of the courtyard where they were given fodder. So everything was being taken care of. This was obvious to the brothers. Uh, they weren't being treated as if they were no-account people, uh, just tossed a scrap of food on, out on the street. They were brought into the courtyard. They were given water to wash their feet, as you would a traveler that you cared about. Uh, their donkeys were being taken care of. It was obvious something was going on here, but the brothers had no idea what. Then they were informed they were going to eat with Joseph. That probably drove their heart rate, rate up a few beats right there as they thought, eat with him. We don't want to eat with him. <laughs> you know, you could think, ah, oh, what an honor to eat with the man who is the second highest in command in all of Egypt and for all practical purposes, the ruler of Egypt. What greater honor? They don't want this honor. <laughs> they want as little due to, him, to do with him as possible. But they figured, if, if we've got to eat with him, let's get the present ready that their father had sent down with him. And we talked about that a couple of Sundays back the uh, gifts that were brought down, the pistachios, the almonds, the balm, the myrrh, all of these uh, what were considered to be luxuries, delicacies in, in that particular day, which were brought as a present to 
to Joseph as one chieftain to another chieftain, if you will, from the chieftain of the tribe of Israel to the ruler of Egypt. And so they brought, they prepared the, the gift together, and as they were doing so, certainly there was a conversation going on between the ten brothers and Simeon. How was it, Simeon? How were you treated here? And Scripture doesn't tell us, but I think Simeon was treated well. I, I, you know, I, I think he was treated with indifference because he had to be, the, the, the facade had to be maintained. But I don't think he was treated poorly. And so he explained what happened to him, and then they told about their trip, and he probably said, by the way, what took you guys so long? <laughs> and of course, they had to explain, and he understood Jacob's reticence, and, and uh, they explained, well, Jacob just wasn't going to let Benjamin come, and it took a while before uh, he would. In fact, you remember as we studied that particular passage, Judah said to his father, in the time we've been arguing about this, we could have been to Egypt and back twice. So, I mean, you know, we're talking about at least a month of time that was spent just trying to convince Jacob to actually let Benjamin go. As the meal was being prepared, these brothers were in total confusion. They had absolutely no idea what was going on, why they were being treated as they were. They had come to fear Joseph so much so they didn't ever want to lay eyes on him again. They hoped they didn't have to have any further contact with him. And yet, here they were being treated as honored guests. It made no sense to them. Verse 24. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present, which was in their hand, and bowed to the ground before him. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he alive, still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother. And he sought a place to weep, and he, en and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And he controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. And he took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. When Joseph arrived with pomp, the brothers were brought in before him. Now I believe each entered with a portion of the gift in his hands. The gift was doled out into... 11 portions, and the 11 approached Joseph with their portion of the present, and they bowed down before him in exaggerated submission. The Hebrew word which is used here is the word which is used to be prostrate flat on your face on the ground. 
It's used in several other passages in Scripture. In fact, in one in Isaiah, the, the word is used where it's within the context of actually being flat on the ground and such as if people were walking over as if you were part of the street. So, I mean, we're talking about absolute humility and submission as they are flat on their faces before Joseph in his presence. Joseph then inquired of them as to their welfare and, and that of their father. Is their father still alive? Now, he had to, of course, ask that question as matter-of-factly as possible because he didn't want to seem too interested, but he was desperately interested. He wanted to know. As they answered that question, the implication of the next word referring to their submission is that they probably had stood up and then when they answered the question, they bowed in submission probably from the waist because the word used is, a, is one of less exaggerated a physical expression of submission. So they probably in the typical oriental way bowed before him as they answered his question the second time. Unbeknownst to them, again, they are fulfilling the dream that Joseph had had over 20 years before of the 11 sheaves bowing down to his sheave. <laughs> One of the two dreams that caused his brothers to have such hatred towards him. And yet here it was being fulfilled to the very letter. They could not have submitted to him in, an, in a more humiliating way than they did. But of course, they didn't know who he was, nor that this was the fulfillment of a dream. You know, one, one of the obvious truths of this is that if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And there's nothing that can stop it. God's promises are every single one of them fulfilled to the very last letter of the promise, as opposed to the, the predictions of all kinds of weirdos in this world today who predict this and that and the other thing. You know, a lot of people get all excited about Nostradamus because he made a few vague uh, statements which can be interpreted to mean this and that. Well, you know, anybody can predict into the future and you make a thousand predictions, you know, half a dozen of them might come true. You know, we could predict, well, so-and-so uh, won't be reelected to office in the next election. Well, you know, your chances are one out of two of uh, that being so. But God's promises, God's predictions are filled, fulfilled to the absolute letter. 100% accuracy. That's the difference between a God-inspired predictor and an enemy, an evil spirit-inspired predictor, of which the world is, of course, fulfilled today. Upon seeing Benjamin, now, again, we have to be reminded of the fact that the only reason Joseph knew this was Benjamin was that he wasn't there the first time and that he was obviously the youngest because Joseph had not seen Benjamin since Benjamin was a toddler. And now he was a man in his 20s. Really hard. Have you ever been uh, looked at one of those uh, school annuals where they put the baby pictures in and you're supposed to match them with the, the adult or the grown-up picture of the child? And sometimes it's easy. You know, the, the, the adult just looks like grown-up little one. Others, they don't look like the same family. You know, it just seemed little resemblance there. It would have been very, very difficult for him to have picked Benjamin out of a crowd, but here, of course, he certainly knew which one he was. And 
as he responds to Benjamin, he is overcome by emotion. Now remember, he is speaking through an interpreter. They do not know that he understands Hebrew or the, the uh, proto-Hebrew that was being developed at that particular time. As far as they know, when they speak amongst themselves, he has no idea what they're saying, but only through the interpreter did he speak. And so through the interpreter he says, May Elohim be gracious to you, my son. Now again, we're, we note the term Elohim. Of course, he would have used the uh, Egyptian equivalent. was a more generic term for God. A fairly common one used beyond just the Hebrew tribe at that particular time or the Israeli tribe. Literally, what he is doing here is asking God to have mercy and compassion on this young man. The word translated gracious is a strong word. It's the word that David used in his very first plea in that famous Psalm 51, where he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness." He's using the strongest possible word, imploring God's mercy and compassion upon him. It's really hard for us in English to, to translate the strength of some of the Hebrew and the Greek words uh, because English tends to be uh, kind of nebulous and, and we, use, like, we use the word love for all kinds of things. You know, we can love God and we can, we can, and we can love peppermint. But I would think our love for peppermint and our love for God would be totally different qualities. Yet we use the same four-letter word. Uh, but here we're talking about a term that it's, that's very, very strong. It's like when uh, we've talked about this before. It's like when you use the word peace. We say, well, we hope that you had a peaceful day. Well, you know, we get a kind of an idea about that, kind of tranquil, quiet day. But if you use the word he in Hebrew, shalom, that is different. I mean, it not only means peace, but it means well-being. It's a, it's a deep word. Uh, when we walk past somebody in the street, we might say hi or howdy or how are you, and we hope they, of course, don't stop and tell us how they are. <laughs> but the Hebrew would say shalom. Now, if we're talking about two friends meeting and they say shalom, they mean more than howdy. <laughs> they mean may the peace of God bless you in your home. May you have that inner sense of joy and contentment that only comes from God. Joseph is very, very concerned about the well-being of his only blood brother. I mean, only full blood brother. The others are all half-brothers to him. Benjamin. And this response was so heartfelt as his love welled up for him, within him for this long-lost brother that he had not seen for over 20 years. So great was his compassion the scripture tells us they had to flee to his inner chamber because he broke down and wept. And how could he excuse that in front of them? And so he had to flee. And the scripture tells us that he stayed in there in his private chambers until he could pull himself together. For 20 years, Joseph had thought about his father. He had thought about his brothers, probably not all totally favorably about the ten, but about Benjamin, he thought very highly. Benjamin had nothing to do with his sail into Egypt. Benjamin was just a little tyke, was not even there. 
Benjamin was a child born of Joseph's mother, but the childbirth killed her. And so Benjamin was, uh, you, you might say, almost the posthumous child of his mother. And uh, so there was this, this, this link that was so strong between these two. And right now, he is not only overwhelmed by the fact that this beloved brother is there in his presence, but overwhelmed by the mercy and the grace of God to fulfill his greatest dream. Do we realize that God really wants to do the very best for each of us? He wants nothing but our highest good. God loves to give good gifts to His people, but sometimes we don't let Him because we're lusting after something else. We want something that we think would be good for us, but God knows wouldn't be good for us, and God has something else for us, but we're too blinded by what we're looking for. We don't see this better gift. Joseph would have been happy with just a letter. But the very presence of his brother before his eyes, healthy and well, he couldn't take it. He was finally able to regain control of his emotions. Remember, these were, had been pent up for 20 years. It's a big flood there. And he has just let a little bit of it out over the top of the dam, you might say. The dam will break a little bit later. So much so... If you remember the passage, we haven't gotten to it in the next chapter, but uh, even though he emptied the room of everybody but himself and his brothers, he was wailing so loudly they heard him clear all the way through the palace. <laughs> That's loud wailing. He returned. It says he washed his face. And then he returned uh, to the dining hall. He said, serve the meal. Now, as you read the passage about the serving of the meal, it looks a little strange to us. They didn't all sit down at a big, long table and have a good dinner together. Uh, they, they had dinner a la Louis XIV. You know. Louis XIV always sat by himself at a big table and sat totally alone. Everybody else sat at other tables. Well, so it is here. Joseph sits at a table by himself as, a, as the high-ranking Egyptian official that was required. That was Egyptian etiquette. Pharaoh never sat at table with all kinds of other people. He sat at a table alone. And others sat nearby at other tables. And everything was brought to him first, as it would be later to Louis XIV. You know, where did Louis XIV get these ideas? <laughs> where, where everything could be checked out and, the, and, the, and, you know, the choice portion provided to the Pharaoh and then the rest of it sent out to everybody else. Well, here we have Joseph sitting alone the Egyptians, other Egyptians that were there, were sitting together but at a separate table from Joseph's table, and then the 11 brothers were seated at yet a third table, further distant from Joseph than the Egyptian table. This was Egyptian etiquette. Again, referring to the 5th century B.C. Greek historian Herodotus. Herodotus was a man who, who tried to explain the reason for the collision between the Greek and Persian cultures that led to the Greek and Persian wars. And we have uh, allusion to that in the book of Esther. And in trying to explain why this happened, he tried to explain the history of the world as best as he could figure it out. And in so doing, he talked about the Egyptians. And he said the Egyptians were a very strange people. 
They were in effect separatists. They considered themselves to be the superior people of the world and everybody else was inferior to them. And they were often offended by foreigners' manners and by the fact that many times foreigners slaughtered with impunity the very animals the Egyptians worshipped and considered to be gods. And therefore, the Egyptians considered foreigners, well, as I mentioned before, they were a very xenophobic people. They hated foreigners. They only tolerated them if they had to. And when it comes to this passage, we see it because the scripture uh, in, this, in this passage we read tells us that in verse 32, so they served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, and it wasn't just the Hebrews, it was any foreigner, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Loathsome. It's loathsome to eat with you. <laughs> what an attitude. But that was the attitude they had. The, the word loathsome literally means abomination. Absolutely detestable. We're not talking about a little bit of a Eh, I don't want to sit with him because he's the wrong color or the wrong height or the wrong width or something else uh, or, or speaks with an accent. No, we're not talking about uh, just a dislike. We're talking about an internal uh, revulsion towards these foreigners. The severity of the term is illustrated by its use in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'll just turn there and, and read that and you'll get a little bit of an idea of how strong this term really is here. In Deuteronomy 7, at the very end of the chapter, verses 25 and 26, the graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord. Now, when the God calls something an abomination, huh, it's an abomination. I mean, it's as far from God as, as, as something can be. And you shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. I mean, so we're talking about extreme here. And this is their attitude towards the Hebrews. They would not sit with them because they were, they were like filth to the Egyptians. At the table of the Hebrews, the 11 brothers, they were seated according to their age, beginning with the eldest, Reuben, down to the youngest, Benjamin. The, the passage tells us they were seated according to their age, and their response to that was they looked at one another in astonishment. You know, it was right down the line in order of age. And they looked at each other. They knew they had never told Joseph their ages. Now, Joseph could have easily figured out Benjamin was the youngest. Obviously, he knew that. And because Reuben had attempted to be the spokesman before, uh, he could assume that Reuben was the eldest. But the ones in between, and, and they're all seated according to age, and they looked around. It probably didn't dawn on them at first, but fairly quickly it did. Because, we're, you know, I don't know about you and, and, and me, but we probably don't go all around, around all the time thinking about the relative ages of siblings. 
But, but in the society we're talking about, the birth order was very, very important, and, and it was always clear. Each one knew where he stood relative to his, um, his siblings. Now, these brothers were no mathematicians, but they knew that this could not be an accident. Do you know what the odds are? And don't you say. <laughs> Do you know what the odds are? <laughs> against the order of 11 brothers being seated according to the ages are, what the odds are? What is the chance? Well, I sat down last night and I started to figure it out because I couldn't believe the number I read. So I started to figure it out. <laughs> I gave that up in a hurry. You figure it out by multiplying them one after another. One times two times 3, times 4, times 5, times 6, times 7, times 8, times 9, times 10, times 11. That's how you figure it out. And I thought, no. <laughs> so I started figuring this thing out, you know. I put 1 in this place and 2 in this place. And pretty soon, you know, the whole paper is full and you're not even done with the first, you know, couple of ranks. It's 40 million to 1. Those are the odds against randomly throwing those 11 brothers together in the proper age sequence and seating them as such. 40? Actually, it's 39.917 million to one. <laughs> That's sort of like the odds of you winning the lottery, you know? Now, I read those odds in, in, in a book called uh, The Genesis Record by Henry Morse, and I thought, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> So I had to try to figure it out, and yep, it's true. The scripture says, then tells us that Joseph sent portions from his table to that of his brothers, giving them an abundance of food and drink. And I think as they sat there, more food and drink showed up in front of them on their table than they had seen in years, maybe in a whole lifetime. And what's interesting about this passage is that he sent to Benjamin five times as much as he sent to each of the other brothers. Now, what is the point of that? Could Benjamin eat five times as much as the others? I mean, they all had as much as they possibly could eat. It's like having five portions of Thanksgiving dinner placed in front of you at once, you know. <laughs> no. The whole purpose of it was definite example of favoritism. Why does Joseph do this? It got him in trouble in the first place because of his father's favoritism. Well, certainly it was an act of love for this brother, but it was planned. It is a test. <laughs> you know, as Conrad used to be Conrad came on the radio, this is a test, it is only a test. <laughs> of the emergency broadcast. This was a test. He is trying to determine whether these brothers are going to keep looking down at Benjamin and talking amongst themselves. Look, at he's giving him five times as much as we're getting. That's what we, this is not a good... No. These brothers could care less. They're grateful. Give him all you want. <laughs> Just leave us alone. <laughs> you know, this is their... They passed the test with flying colors. And this is really wonderful. And the meal was a very pleasant one had by all. But Joseph 
is not done testing. Because Joseph has a very, very major revelation to bring to his brothers. And he wants to be sure beyond the shadow of a doubt that they're ready to receive it. He wants them to be able to understand that he is Joseph, that their sins have been forgiven by him, and that he loves them, and he wants healing of this 20-year breach. But he cannot do that if he thinks there is still hatred and still jealousy, if these brothers' hearts are still turned against him or against his brother Benjamin. And so one last major test has got to be performed. And in many ways, you could almost view it as the cruelest of all. But Joseph is not intending to be cruel. Think about it for a moment. There have been people who have been saved, become born-again believers in Jesus Christ, followers of the living God, whose life afterwards became almost from the earthly perspective a living hell. As they, they were ostracized from their family, let's say it was in a Mohammedan world, and lost their job and treated as an outcast, and in many societies burned at the stake or chopped into little pieces or, or fed to the lions or whatever. Is it because God delights in torturing people? Absolutely not. The scripture tells us that although God knows that the death of His saints is glorious for them, He is not delighted by the death of His saints. He is not even delighted by the death of the heathen. God does not joy in pain, but He knows pain is necessary. He knows that discipline is necessary. As a godly father disciplines his child, so God much more perfectly does because it's for our good. Joseph is doing this for the good of his brothers, of his father, of, of himself in this whole relationship, even though it's hard for him to do because he has to deceive his brothers, he has to subject them to hours of agony and even days of agony, and yet it has to happen. It's sort of like birth. Birth is a very, very painful thing for the mother. But it's essential for the joy of a new life. And so it is in this situation. I guess we won't be able to uh, proceed into uh, chapter 44, but you have the outline in front of you. We'll begin with chapter 44 next week and we'll we'll look at what this final test is that Joseph applies. And then, of course, that wonderful hour, that moment when he says to his brothers, I am Joseph. And instead of being jumping around in joy and delight, they're thunderstruck. And they cannot believe it. And they don't want to believe it. They're afraid. They're scared to death. 